You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Julius Caesar's frowning on this entire episode. He's been frowning on this entire series. March 14th, 44 BC, the night before the Ides. Servilia, it's been a year since Caesar returned from Spain and I cannot reach him anymore. I remember when we were young and beautiful, we fell into bed together as easy as breathing. It never mattered who else we belonged to. In the time of Sulla, in the time of prescriptions and fear, we found we were braver together. Now Caesar's become what we most feared and hated, a dictator stronger than Sulla, the next thing to a king and God, and I'm the one who will stop him. Behind closed doors, my son and his friends are hatching their plans, sharpening their knives in the dark. It was I who guided them towards sedition and made sure that their plan would work. But I still love Caesar as he was, the beautiful man who knew me. Is that man still in there somewhere? If he is, there's still time to save him. Would I betray my own son to do it? Must Caesar die so the Republic might live? No matter what happens to Caesar, the Republic will never be the same. Brutus. It's been a year since Caesar returned from Spain, and tomorrow we do the deed. I never wanted it to come to this. I loved Caesar like a father and hated Pompey to the ends of the earth. Still, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he forced me to choose, and I chose Pompey. I chose the Republic. There was no other choice I could make. Caesar won that war and heaped honors on my head, even though I sided against him. At first, I was happy just to live. But now he stacked the Senate with his friends, took the vote from the people, and gutted the Republic. And I am his right-hand man. The people don't miss the irony. I am descended from a line of tyrant killers. Everyone's watching to see what I'll do. There's still time to sheath my blade and make a different choice. But what would that make me? No matter which way I decide, the Republic will never be the same. Calpurnia. 
It's been a year since Caesar returned from Spain, and I've never had a dream so bad as this. I dreamed they carried my husband through the streets in a litter, his poor bleeding face exposed to the crowd, his hands hanging down like dead gray spiders. In the dream, I took him in my arms. There was blood on the doorstep and on my clothes. As portents come, there are none so clear as this. There's a meeting with the Senate tomorrow and I have a bad feeling. But my husband doesn't listen to portents or rumors. He dismisses his bodyguards and walks unarmed in the streets. There's still time to warn him. He won't listen. I'll tell him in the morning, discharge my duty to the gods, and he will go to his meeting anyway, and he will return like always, unharmed, and will have a good laugh about how silly I am, and everything will stay exactly the same. Caesar, it's been a year since I returned from Spain, and I'm still staggered by all I must do. A new library for the city of Rome, new ports and canals to improve trade, a new calendar to mark the years. I will make this city into a gleaming beacon for beauty and learning. The people may grumble now, but soon they will thank me. The people, you see, are grumbling. I don't understand why. I've been merciful. In my youth, Sulla soaked the streets with blood. Where he was brutal, I am benevolent. He hung his enemies' heads in the rostra. I shower them with honors and positions. The old democracy was a beautiful dream. In practice, it was unstable. Better to have a single leader, one who cares about the common man. Under my control, nothing in Rome will be the same. There's still time to prove to the people it will all be so much better. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So Jen and I are pouring one out for Julius Caesar because this is our last episode about him. It's 11.30 in the morning and you're drinking and it's 4.30 in the afternoon. It's the most beautiful sunny day we've had so far in London in 2019. And I'm sitting in a room with absolutely no ventilation. That's how much I love you guys. I am boiling. I'm literally melting into my microphone. <laughs> we are Mark Antonying all the way through this. Absolutely. He would approve. He'd be like, you know what? It's nine o'clock. It's booze o'clock, ladies. Crack one open. I'm drinking one of my drinking. I'm drinking Blue Moon Mango Wheat Beer, and it is delicious. I am on my first one, and I've got two more in the fridge, kids. Blue Moon, if you want to support us, please do. Candoni Wines, if you want to support us, please do. That's right. We do take booze sponsorships. We will agree to drink your alcohol throughout all of our podcast episodes. <laughs> it just makes the podcast better. It just does. What were the two episodes that we did drunk? Uh, Germanicus the Manicus. And Locusta. We did not do Saturnalia drunk, which we should have done. We totally should have. And I will say, I kid you guys not, except for How to Survive a Siege Part 1, which is the first episode we did, which for some reason is our top listen to episode. Germanicus the Manicus and Locusta the Poisoner are our second, two, and three most listened to episodes. I know. I think you guys just like it when we drink. I think we should just be drunk more often. Probably. Anyway, we digressed already. All right, sorry. Here we go. In our last few episodes, Julius Caesar returned victorious from the Alexandrian War, a 10-month-long first date with Cleopatra that involved deadly urban warfare, riots in the streets, lethal palace intrigue, and lots of hot sex. Swoon! Swoon! <laughs> We're swooning. After winning that war, Caesar went back to Rome and was basically too busy to breathe for a while. He settled an insurrection among his troops, got himself declared dictator for another 10 years, cleaned up the remaining resistance 
resistance led by Cater the Younger in Utica, who was busy having gross feet at people, and threw himself how many triumphs, Jen? Five. He had five triumphs. Well, actually, he had four at this point, but then we're going to get to the next one. All right, we're going to get to the point where he throws himself one triumph too many. If he just stopped at four, it would have all been fine. Anyway, at some point, there's going to be a fifth triumph because we're in the future. Yeah, we are. We're over like 2000 years in the future. Sometimes I feel like you're in the future, Jen, because you're like five hours ahead of me. Technically, I am in the future. You're just living your life in the past. One hour for each of Caesar's triumphs. (laughs) (laughs) Cleopatra came to visit him, bringing along their son, Caesarian, and staying in Caesar's swanky estate just outside the boundary of Rome, which was awkward for Caesar's wife, Calpurnia. But... The couple didn't get much time together because not long after his long succession of triumphs, Caesar had to rush off to Spain to deal with the last threat to his rule, Pompey's two sons, Gnaeus and Sextus. It was a short campaign, but a tough one. The first time Appian tells us that Caesar actually feared for his life, although we both find this very hard to believe. Yeah, I think this is a little bit rhetorical here because Caesar was doing a whole lot of stuff that was dangerous one might say. I mean, when Caesar was in Elysia, trapped between the inside Gauls and the outside Gauls, you cannot tell me he wasn't fearing for his life. Or how about in the Battle of Pharsalus, or when he was, like, swimming in the sea, desperate to get to land? Right, and the Alexandrians were pelting him with rocks? Oh, that was the Battle of Alexandria. Sorry, that was the Battle of Alexandria, but Pharsalus was also quite a desperate time. Right, when he was in Pharsalus, his troops couldn't eat anything except for the root that they feed to their animals. Yeah, I mean, Caesar had been through some really close calls. And, you know, it's possible Appian wanted to glorify the the ends of the fight for the Republic and sort of Pompey's sons and that legacy. And that's why he's making this comment here. Or maybe he knows something we don't. I mean, it did sound like kind of a desperate time, right? Caesar had to, like, run up the hill all alone because his troops didn't want to run up the hill. And then there was that weird wall of severed limbs. Remember that? Yeah, there was the weird wall of severed limbs. We still don't understand why there was a weird wall of severed limbs is just one of those details that was like randomly mentioned somewhere and not adequately explained but I included it because it was cool and because in ancient history fangirl when we have a cool thing like a wall of severed limbs we're going to tell you about it right if there's a wall of severed limbs trust us we'll mention it so moving on Caesar was back in Rome all his barriers to power had been removed he defeated Pompey and Cato put down Pompey's sons packed the senate with his friends and there was no one to stand in the way of doing exactly what he wanted with the Roman Empire although technically it wasn't a Roman Empire it's kind of on the cusp, right? This is the cusp. Right. It's not the Republic anymore. It hasn't made the switch to empire fully yet. It's kind of on the cusp. I don't know what we call it. The consulship of Julius and Caesar, I suppose. Exactly. Oh, and our girl Cleopatra was back. Pretty much as soon as Julius Caesar got back from Spain, she set up in Caesar's big garden villa outside of town again. And it's pretty clear they were spending a lot of time together because Caesar had an ambitious agenda of reforms for Rome and Cleopatra's stamp was all over it. Rome at this point was not an ancient city, not like Alexandria was. It was more gritty than gorgeous and its great marble splendors were mostly in the future. Most of the buildings we associate with Rome today the Baths of Caracalla, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, had yet to be built. This city was a tangle of narrow alleys with no large sweeping main avenues like there were in Alexandria. It didn't follow any sort of central plan. Crappy apartment buildings towered over the streets, blocking out the sun, all rickety and not up to code. Even in the nicer areas of town, the streets were narrow, noisy, and filthy. Do you know what Rome was seriously missing right now? What? Crassus. (laughs) 
<laughs> Didn't ask for more crasses, but you're getting more crasses. <laughs> oh, yeah, guys. Next season, you're getting a whole episode on crasses. I mean, we cannot let go of crasses. He's just, he's so much fun. I don't know why we latched onto him. <laughs> the reason they're missing crasses right now is like, he totally would have come in there with his own little fire brigade, burned down all the crappy houses, and then rebuilt them and <laughs> put more crappy houses in their place and been sort of a terrible landlord. Is this like gentrification in ancient Rome? Like gentrification by fire? Pretty much. I mean, that happened quite a lot in ancient cities. Everything was built so close on top of each other and there was no fire department that it was kind of up to the people to get the fire out. Everyone cooked with fire and lit their houses with lamps that were fire-based and everything was extremely flammable, so... Heated their houses with fire. Not good ventilation. Exactly. Your chances of dying in a fire in Rome are super high, especially if Crassus is around to set the fires. Officially, the story is not that he set the fires on purpose, but, I mean, we're calling it here on Ancient History Fangirl, he's setting the fires on purpose. It's totally his racket. Don't worry if we're wrong, he'll haunt us, I'm sure. Right, I'm sure Crassus will have something to say about it in the next arc. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So moving on. So that was what Rome was like. Whereas Alexandria was a place of brilliant white marble and aquamarine sea, of wonders like the Great Library and the Lighthouse, a place of antiquity thousands of years older than anything in Rome, and a magnet for all the most learned and talented scholars and artists in the world. Caesar wanted a little of the Alexandrian glamour to rub off on his own city. One of the first things he did was start laying plans for a great library that would rival the one in Alexandria. His vision was to make a place where all the great works and Latin and Greek would be available to anyone who wanted to read them. And he even appointed a leading scholar to start assembling the collection. And I just have to stop here because I'm sure he didn't mean anyone, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he did. Like, did he only want men to look at them? Only want citizens to look at them? I don't think that information is even out there. No. So we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, Caesar. We're giving you the benefit of the doubt and say it was anyone. Caesar was a man of the people. Or he pretended he was. As long as it was convenient for Caesar. Exactly. He also extended Roman citizenship to leading scientists, doctors, and teachers in medicine and the liberal arts to try and entice them to live in the city. He wanted to make Rome a center of scholarship like Alexandria was. I mean, you can clearly see that Cleopatra's rubbed off. Yeah, absolutely. Caesar also took over the entire Roman forum because he was a man of the people. He put into action a plan to raise and rebuild all the storied public buildings with his own branding all over them. His ambitious new public works projects included the Forum Julium, a grand building that would give more space for courts of law, the Septa Julia, a public space for voting on the field of Mars, a new speaker's platform, just because, and a new Senate house since the previous one had been burned down by an angry mob in 52 BC and still wasn't rebuilt. 
His plans for the future included a new Temple of Mars and an ambitious theater to rival the one Pompey had built after one of his triumphs. Pompey, incidentally, had also built an elaborate set of public works after one of his triumphs in 61 BC, about 15 years earlier. It included the Portico of Pompey and the Theater of Pompey. These were Rome's first permanent theater building and its first public park. People called the whole complex Pompey's Works, and while no traces of it remain today, it would have been as iconic to Caesar's Rome as the Colosseum is for us now. So, like, graphic design pictures of the outline of Pompey's work could be shown on a t-shirt and you would immediately know that that was Rome in Caesar's time. Oh. I wish we knew what Pompey's works looks like so we could like put that on a mug. Mm. Can you get Julius Caesar to draw us a picture, Jen? Julius Caesar does not do fan art. I'm bummed. Was that really him or was that just you? You'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Julius Caesar's mad at me because I offended him last time he came on the podcast. (laughs) I mean, it it makes total sense that I would do a giant 13-episode arc on Julius Caesar and at the end of it, he wouldn't talk to me. (laughs) Anyway, but even Pompey hadn't been audacious enough to rebuild the entire nerve center of the Roman Republic with his fingerprints all over it like Caesar did. Well, because Caesar was like, this is not the Republic anymore. This is the empire of Julius Caesar or the Rome of Julius Caesar. Like, that was it. He was the boss, man. It was the consulship of Julius Caesar until forever. No, of Julius and Caesar. That's right. The consulship of Julius and Caesar until forever. So the Egyptians were obsessive note takers and record keepers. Don't forget the accountants. Sorry. The Egyptians were obsessive note takers, record keepers, and accountants. So another thing Caesar did was start a census. (laughs) You forgot the accountants. Jen's husband is an accountant. Whoops, he would not be pleased. This is what happens when I'm a glass of wine in and in a room with no ventilation. No ventilation for you, Jen. Forget it. I'm literally sweating booze. (laughs) We are not that far in. You are Mark Antonying the shit out of this podcast right now. It's always been my dream to be compared to Mark Antony. I mean, I think of the two of us, you're the one who's the more similar to Mark Antony. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely the Mark Antony to your Julius Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that is deeply insulting and I will take it. Oh, it's not. You're definitely Julius Caesar. I mean, that's a good thing. And I'm definitely the Antony. It must be all this, all the uh, aristocratic women that I seduce. And men. (laughs) (laughs) You're the general and I'm just like, okay, just point me in the direction of whatever needs doing. She's the war elephant. Sometimes she goes in the direction I point her in and sometimes not. So another thing Caesar did was start a census. He found that Rome's population had dropped dramatically since his war with Pompey started, which meant he could reduce the grain dole. In previous years, Roman citizens were entitled to receive free grain from the government. After conducting his census, Caesar reduced the grain dole by half, but he also ordered the rebuilding of Carthage and Corinth and introduced a program to relocate poor people to those cities. I don't know. This is a real mixed bag here. It's like, we're just going to ship all the poor people out of Rome, and that's fine. I side-eye that. Yeah, we're just going to ship them to other cities that we destroyed. Yeah, and I also have this thought. I I didn't find anything about really what were conditions like on the ground in the days of Julius Caesar's civil war. But if the population was reduced by half in either the city of Rome or the whole peninsula, I'm not actually sure. I think it was just the city of Rome, but I could be wrong on that. What was going on in there? Well, think about it. The city of Rome is a dangerous place to be. It was already a dangerous place. Yeah, and there were probably a lot of people who, with all the instability, fled to the countryside and other places because you didn't know if you were going to be one day a senator or the next day out on the streets. You didn't know who was going to be in charge. I mean, if I was not a common person and had the ability, I certainly wouldn't be in Rome during this time period. I would have made for the coast and just chilled there somewhere else. A lot of the richer people did that, but I assume that 
that a lot of the poor people didn't have the ability to move. That's a big thing. And also, let's think about why the numbers of population declined. With all of the men, essentially, being out fighting wars, there wasn't a lot of, like, getting it on back home to increase the population. But there certainly was a lot of people dying. And also, the government really broke down during this time. So, you know, there would have been more public disorder, public unrest, angry mobs, maybe more fires, maybe more violence. Exactly. So it doesn't really surprise me that this is what happened. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me either. This is just a time period that must have been really violent and disturbing that there isn't much written about. Well, of course, there's nothing written about. Think about it. Mark Antony was certainly not going to record this. Mark Antony was out of town. A lot of the best men were out of town. And women who would have been reading or writing and recording this, like maybe their civilian Fulvia who would have recorded this. If they wrote things down, they like, I don't think those works have survived. Like We don't have the letters of Servilia. No, we learned that with like Agrippina's memoirs. Their works were not taken seriously. So let's get back to Caesar now. It's all about Caesar. Caesar had noticed the complex lock and dike systems that brought water to the farmlands around the Nile in Egypt, and he wanted to bring that technology to Rome. He proposed a canal system that would drain the swamps around around central Italy, making rich farmland available for settling. And while they were at it, why not connect the Tiber River, the one that flowed through Rome, to the Adriatic Sea? True, this was a distance of over 100 miles, but if it could be pulled off, think of the trade benefits. The closest sea harbor to Rome was at Ostia. It was still a small, inconvenient port, blocked up by shoals and rocks, and not ideal for large ships. Caesar made plans to re-engineer it, opening up a large causeway like the one at the harbor in Alexandria. This would allow great fleets to dock there. And Caesar enacted one reform that still affects our lives today, every day. His reform to the Julian calendar. I mean, check the name there, that calendar. <clears throat> the Julian calendar. Mm-hmm. Previously, the Romans counted 355 days in a year. Every so often, the priests would insert an extra month into the calendar. They did this whenever they felt like it, with zero advance notice. So you never knew when there might be a random extra month in your year, maybe until you were living in it. And you never knew what that month was going to be called. I say it should be called Dumbledore. Because a wizard did it. (laughs) At one point, Stacey Schiff tells us that Cicero didn't even know what year it was. I mean, I feel you, Cicero. Frequently, we don't know what year it is. If you listen to, I think it's, is it the Saturday? No, not the Saturnalia episode. It is the Saturnalia episode where you're like two years off. I say something about how it's the last episode in 2016, but actually it's 2018. So I was having a Cicero moment. Yeah. And Jenny definitely accused me of writing it into the script wrong. And I was like, ha ha ha. I did not. You did so. Can we just focus on Caesar? Back to Caesar. Because guys, this is all about Caesar. Caesar instituted a calendar like the Egyptians used. 12 months in a year, each one with 30 days and a five-day period at the end of the year. We're calling that Dumbledore. Dumbledore. (laughs) Actually, they probably called it Saturnalia, but we're just going to call it Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Oh my God, that's the best. Yo, Dumbledore. Praise Dumbledore. Caesar had mathematicians and astronomers from Cleopatra's retinue help him in making these changes. His calendar, with some minor adjustments, is still the one we use today in many parts of the world. So if you know what year you're in right now, you can thank Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar will take your thanks. Julius Caesar would like to let you know that he appreciates your thanks, your praise, your adulation, and requests that you do it more frequently. Oh, is Julius Caesar back? Julius Caesar has never really left. I knew it. I knew you couldn't stay away from us. Julius Caesar, you still pissed at us. Crickets. (laughs) I mean, he is very pissed, but 
you know, sometimes he'll just pop up. He likes to talk in the third person and remind us that, you know, you're welcome for all the great things he did. He broke up with us because we weren't shamelessly adulating him, or at least I wasn't. He broke up with you. (laughs) I did the entire series, and now Julius Caesar won't talk to me unless we're shamelessly adulating him. I mean, why does that surprise you in any way, shape, or form? Caesar also worked to stabilize the government. Remember, Caesar had come of age during a time of intense political volatility. We talk about that in Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom. In his early career, he'd watched the machinery of government break down under the weight of its own expansion and the ambitions of its powerful generals. With a weak central government, corruption had ballooned, the provinces had become nurseries for seditious governors to build up their strength, and the army had replaced the government as the way of enforcing power. Julius Caesar had done all these things, by the way. He knew from experience, because this is his playbook. This is exactly his playbook. And what I found really fascinating about this is, you know, Julius Caesar really exploited the loopholes in this system. And that's how he was able to amass an army. That's how he was able to become a populist and really get into the position he did. And as soon as he got there, he was like, right, this ends now. I've seen how to exploit the system. I have enough powerful people on my side. I don't want to be in a position where other people could do the same thing. We're going to end this now. He was pulling up the ladder behind him, basically. He's like, I am creating the glass ceiling. Good luck. Jen and I have had several intense discussions because this is what Jen and I talk about over whether or not this is a good or a bad thing. I mean, I think it's really mixed, right? Like on the one hand, this actually did create a lot of stability in the government and for the country. Eliminating these loopholes eliminated that instability. I mean, theoretically, another Sulla could be coming up behind him. But also someone else could be coming up behind him who's like, do you not see how awful Julius Caesar is for everything that we've stood for? He's taken away fundamental rights. He's planning to put himself in place as dictator. He is not a good guy. And once we have absolute power by one person, there's no way that people will ever get it back. He was removing all ways to challenge him and shoring up his own power at the same time. So yeah, so I can kind of see it both ways here. Anyway, to make matters worse, in the um, previous government, senators had seen no reason to improve or change the system as that would threaten their own power. What Caesar wanted was to make Rome over, taking the best ideas from Egypt and incorporating them into a stable, modern government without the inefficiencies and inequities that held it back. And remember, Egypt was basically a theocracy monarchy where the rulers were kings and gods. That was now the template because he was obsessed with Cleopatra and was just taking all these pages from her playbook. So Caesar introduced a new constitution. This did three things. Cut the knees out from under rebelling generals in the provinces, strengthen the central government, and meld all the provinces into a single cohesive whole under him. He reduced the time the governors could serve in the provinces slashing their ability to build up wealth and power. He implemented tax laws that made it difficult for governors to extort the citizens of their provinces. And then he extended Latin rights of citizenship to people in every province, reducing the inequalities that had led to the social wars and other uprisings. This elevated the civil rights of vast swaths of people who had been conquered by the Romans, including the Gauls. This probably had a direct positive effect on the lives of millions of people, but it also doesn't make up for the fact that many of these people have been conquered in the first place, Julius Caesar. I mean, I really do feel like Julius Caesar was the king of giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Or let's just start with taking away with one hand and then giving. He didn't really give anything without taking anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the whole reason all of this happened. There was no reason to have a Gallic War. There was in his mind, but it was all about Julius Caesar. And if we keep going, he's not going to talk to us. (laughs) And third, Julius Caesar strengthened the central government by consolidating power under himself because this is all about the Caesar. All about Caesar. 
Caesar. And the Julius. Bibulus and not Bibulus. Julius and Caesar. Julius, Gaius and Caesar or whatever it was. Gaius, Julius, Caesar. <laughs> All right. When he returned to Rome, Caesar found... <laughs> Every time I say the word Caesar now, I kind of snicker a little bit. When he returned to Rome, Caesar found that the city was severely depopulated, which we talked about, including the ranks of senators. Caesar appointed about 900 new senators and other government officials, all of them loyal to him. This eliminated the checks and balances the Roman government was supposed to have and basically made the Senate a rubber stamp for Caesar's agenda. Who doesn't want that much power? Like, what could go wrong? I see nothing wrong with this plan. Incidentally, in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how only patricians, the aristocracy, could hold office in Rome. And that was kind of true and kind of not. A lot of the time when we're researching things for this podcast in ancient Rome and other places, but especially in ancient Rome these days, we get a little wrapped around the axle about when certain laws and customs and military practices were and were not in effect. Because remember, Rome has like, I don't know, depending on how you count it, like an 800 to 1000 year history. And these laws changed all the time. So sometimes it's kind of hard to tell like, okay, what were the laws of citizenship right at this moment in time that I'm looking at here? Or how big was a cohort right at this time that I'm looking at here for this battle? Like sometimes it's hard to parse that out. Maybe it isn't hard for professional historians, but we are not professional historians. We're just randos who read a lot. So in the early Republic, it was true that only patricians could hold high office, including senatorial office. But by Caesar's time, plebeians, who were the common people, could also hold offices in addition to being tribunes of the plebs. Cicero was actually not a patrician. He rose from relatively humble origins because of his oratory skills. Yeah, because his name means chickpea. We've talked about this before. And it's because of his nose or maybe the incestuous chickpea farm that his family owned. We're not sure. It's one or the other. It is definitely ancestorial and not incest. I think it's (laughs) ancestorial incest. I think Cicero would be deeply disappointed with you, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) I I think he could just join Caesar in that boat. I'm going to go back to the story now as Jenny continues disappointing the best men. Ugh. As I continue to disappoint everybody who's the subject of any of the episodes I've written. This is my MO. None of these historical (laughs) figures will talk to me anymore. I'm going to get us back to the story. So here's the thing. People were still prickly and elitist about who did and did not get certain privileges in Rome. And one group of people who were definitely not supposed to hold privileges were quote unquote barbarians. Recently conquered peoples, like, you know, the Gauls. But Caesar appointed a lot of Gallic noblemen to positions of power in Rome, including in the Senate House. And there were cutting jokes circulating about clueless Gauls wandering around Rome in dirty pants, asking directions to the Senate House. And Suetonius tells us some of the song lyrics that were popular at the time, quote, Caesar led the Gauls in triumph, led them to the Senate House. Then the Gauls pulled off their breeches and put on the toga. It was probably funnier than that in Latin and had like a real like banging melody. I don't know. How does this go, Jen? Caesar led the Gauls in triumph and then led them to the Senate House. Then the Gauls pulled off their breeches and put on the toga. Yeah, I don't think that's quite how it went. I think that was actually pretty good. Like we kind of did the same thing at the same time. Did we though? I don't know. Maybe it's just the alcohol talking. People were livid, especially aristocratic people who didn't like to see their privileges overturned. And when Caesar's new Senate showered him with honors and grandiose titles like Imperator. 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 And father of the fatherland. These people... (laughs) I don't know why that amuses me. It's your Vermont accent. Every time you do like salmon leap. The salmon leap. Yes, it kills me every time. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's just a dorky thing that I do with my voice. Father of the fatherland. 
<laughs> These people were apoplectic about those names in particular. Imperator, by the way, was supposed to be a one-time title bestowed by your armies for one specific campaign, but Caesar got to have the title permanently. I mean, spoiler alert, permanently is not going to be that much longer. <laughs> Caesar's listening right now. Do you really want him to hear that? He definitely would be mad at us. But, oh, raise your hand if you care, though. Oh, look at that. My hand's down. Oh, so is mine. Anyway, the Senate also passed a law saying that all these titles should be passed down to all his heirs in perpetuity. So Caesar's pretty much setting up a dynasty right now. And he's in that transitional place, moving Rome from a republic into an empire. That's right. He's in the pivot point right now. And the pivot point is one of the most dangerous places to be. Exactly. And he's using the Senate here to essentially rubber stamp what will be the undoing of them. Yeah, interesting. Oh, and speaking of heirs, let's just remember Julius Caesar was the great, 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 whatever uncle of the Julian Claudian. So, of course, he had an heir problem. Uncle Caesar had an heir problem. According to Suetonius, another of the first things Caesar did was attempt to pass a law that, quote, making it lawful for Caesar to marry what wives he wished and as many as he wished for the purpose of begetting children. I mean, <laughs> he wants the Senate to pass a law that allows him to have plural marriages. Can you imagine Servilia and Cleopatra as sister wives? First off, Servilia is an outside cat. I don't think she's going to be anybody's sister wife. Second off, I do think he was probably passing this law so he could marry Cleopatra because he was in love. But he didn't want to break up with Calpurnia. Well, I don't think he could break up with Calpurnia. I think he needed that marriage politically. Caesar, we're side-eyeing you so hard right now. I mean, I just have so many problems with the Caesar. Like, I don't know if you're listening or not. Caesar, what are your opinions on women? Let's talk about that for a minute. Crickets. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to engage. Disengage. Disengage. He's not engaging with that. <laughs> Caesar, we've got your number. Don't even with us. Caesar was given the right to speak first during all Senate meetings, and his image was minted on coins. See, this is why Caesar won't talk to us. Yeah, he gets to speak first. He gets to set the agenda. And if you're talking about something he doesn't want to talk about, he bollocks off. So I'm just going to go back and recap us before we had the interruption. Caesar was given the right to speak first during all Senate meetings, and his image was minted on coins. This was a first for a Roman citizen who was still alive. Caesar alone got to control public funds, and Caesar alone got to lead an army. And that's really important because before this, as we have been looking at throughout the whole series, generals would have their own army, and their armies were loyal to them. And what Caesar is essentially saying is there is one army, and that army is loyal to Caesar. You may serve at my pleasure in that army, but you cannot have your own army, Crassus, or anyone else who's rich enough to afford it. Because obviously it would have to be the ghost of Crassus because he's not here anymore. Well, Crassus was the one who famously said that you're not really rich until you can afford to fund your own army. Exactly. So a statue of Caesar would be paraded on a chariot during festivals among the statues of gods. Because Caesar right now is working on making himself a living god. He's working on it. You can just imagine Cleopatra, who was considered a goddess by her people, asking Caesar why he wasn't also considered a god. I bet they totally had that conversation. Because not long after he got back to Rome, a state-sponsored cult of Julius Caesar sprang up with Mark Antony as the high priest. And I just... <laughs> is the best detail. I mean, who would you want as the high priest of your state-sponsored cult, Jen, if you had a state-sponsored cult? 
I would pick Mark Antony. Oh, totally Mark Antony. I mean, he really brings a Bacchanalian spirit to the whole thing, doesn't he? He totally does. And he wouldn't take it too seriously. And everyone who'd be like enjoying your festivals would be like, well, this is going to be as good as Saturnalia, guys. We're going to be super hungover the next morning, but we're going to have a ball while it's going on. I mean, that is the ideal state-sponsored cult, in my opinion. Me too. We do not approve of state-sponsored cults, by the way, here at Ancient History Fangirl. I Probably am gullible enough to join a cult. I'm not. <laughs> Definitely not. I would annoy them too much within the first half hour. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm really stuck around the axle. <laughs> like, why exactly do we all have to dress the same and shave our head? Like, I just, I don't understand. We just do it. We just wear the robes and shave our heads. What? Please explain it again. I just don't get it. Is there a rope ladder? Is there a rope ladder? Can I still wear my Taddy Divine jewelry? No Taddy Divine jewelry, Jen. You're in a cult. Anyway, I need to get back to the story. Julius Caesar would not be happy. Julius Caesar's frowning on this entire episode. He's been frowning on this entire series. (laughs) So in addition to having his own personal cult, a month was named after him, July. And incidentally, I am born in July. Just barely. No wonder you can channel him and I can't. Well, only sometimes. I'm born at the end of the month. I'm not like a mid-July baby who's got like all the Julius Caesar know-how. Well, you do have the island thing in common too. Like you both knew about the fresh water. We did know about the fresh water. Now she's saying we, like they're a unit. Sometimes we are. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote this episode. I did all the hard work. That's fine. I'm sure Crassus will talk to you next season or Spartacus will talk to you next season. Spartacus talks to me. This will all have been worth it. So through various government reforms and bestowing on himself rights and titles, Caesar became the sole power in Rome and the next best thing to a king and God. Can you hear the alarm bells, Jenny? Whole giant Caesar-shaped pile of red flags. Mm. Finally... In February of 44 BC, Caesar was named dictator for life. This came with all kinds of privileges. A raised chair was installed in the Senate house just for Caesar, made of gold and ivory that looked suspiciously like a throne. Hmm. Caesar was also allowed to wear triumphal dress whenever he wanted. We talked about triumphal dress in the Devil's Three-Way episode, but basically, generals in a triumph were allowed to wear the toga picta, or painted toga, a toga all in purple, which signified a closeness to gods and kings. You were only supposed to wear the toga picta during your triumph, and you couldn't look too happy about it. Otherwise, the other senators might think you were harboring kingly ambitions. But now, Caesar got to wear the toga picta all the time. He'd also taken to wearing, I love this part, this is like my favorite detail, He also had taken to wearing a pair of thigh-high crimson boots. He must have had killer legs to pull that off. This is club gear where I'm from. Anyway, he wore these thigh-high crimson boots. They actually had historical significance. He claimed they were the traditional footwear of the legendary kings of Alba Longa. These were a line of mythic kings who'd supposedly ruled in the region before Remus and Romulus. So Caesar was now telling everyone he was descended from these legendary kings. And he just walked around like that, wearing his toga picked a fringy and his belt loose, rocking thigh-high crimson boots and a laurel crown to cover his bald spot like a boss. And let me tell you something about that laurel crown. Please tell us about the laurel crown. I learned about this laurel crown from researching the Spartacus episodes, which have not dropped yet. So our guy Crassus. <laughs> Didn't ask for more Crassus. Caesar would be so ticked off that we're mentioning Crassus as much as we are in this series. Caesar, are you mad that we're mentioning Crassus? Caesar does not approve of all this flagrant and unasked for mentioning of the scoundrel Crassus. You partnered with Crassus. Caesar partners with those Caesar must partner with, but they are all rogues. All right. Well, it's all your fault for aligning yourself with the rogues then, isn't it? Rogues and Pompey. Look, buddy, (laughs) you made your own blanket fort. 
Caesar never made a blanket fort. Caesar would not lie in a blanket fort. Caesar keeps going, much like a shark. Yeah, the sharks have to keep swimming. You know, I agree with you, Caesar. Oh my God. Let me talk about this crown, please. I'm trying to have a conversation with Caesar right now. So the thing about the laurel crown is those laurels, I'm pretty sure, they came from the Delphic Oracle and they were like blessed and they were a really big deal to get to have and wear. You got to wear them in your triumph. And I learned about this because after Crassus defeated Spartacus, he wasn't given a triumph because Crassus definitely got a little bit the short end of the stick here because the Spartacus war was definitely a war, but because it was a slave uprising and because it was fought on Roman soil, the Senate sort of found a way to weasel around giving him a triumph and they instead gave him an ovation. And when you get an ovation, you get a myrtle crown, which is not as good a crown. So Crassus, being incredibly wealthy and the master of writing a stroppy note, said, Dear Senate, I have done good work. And in this instance, I think you should relax your standards and give me a laurel crown. So the Senate was kind of tapped out after fighting Spartacus and Mithridates. And they were like, you know what? If Crassus really wants a laurel crown and it's going to make a massive difference, he can have a laurel crown, but he's still only getting an ovation. So that is why I know how important those laurel crowns are. It's all these like maniacally important symbols. It is. And it's all like middle school nonsense. This all strikes me as deeply petty shit. So getting back to Caesar, because this is all about Caesar. So when Caesar got home from fighting Pompey's sons, he threw himself that terribly planned fifth triumph. And this time, the mood of the crowd was sour. Triumphs were supposed to celebrate Roman victories against foreign enemies. It was an extremely bad taste to throw one celebrating how you beat up on other Roman citizens. People were starting to talk. The senators, even those Caesar had appointed, which, you know, was all of them, didn't like the way he strutted around Rome in his toga picta and his thigh-high boots. They showered him with honors, and then they made fun of him behind his back at how arrogantly he accepted them. And, you know, Caesar, how do you feel about that, Caesar? Hold up, Caesar has something to say. <laughs> Caesar was aware of the cattiness of the best men, and Caesar could not give two figs. Caesar was the one who held all the power. Those who did not want to honor Caesar would find themselves subject to his mercy. Yeah, Caesar's mercy made people, like, switch sides in the middle of a war. I mean, that's no joke. Caesar's mercy made Cato kill himself. Caesar, what do you think? Caesar thinks that... Cato made the right decision. Didn't you begrudge Cato his death the way that Cato begrudged you his life or something? Yes, but if the sandals had been on Caesar's feet, Caesar would have made the same decision Cato did. I see. So you respect his choice. Caesar is aggressively pro-choice. I salute that. As long as that choice is Caesar's. I don't salute that. <laughs> Never mind. Change my whole opinion. Come on, he's still a man, Jenny. He's still a man. See, this is the thing with Caesar. For a minute, I'm like, yeah. And then for a minute, I'm like, oh, aggressively, no. It's everyone's push and pull. So Stacy's shift suggests that Caesar was walking a tightrope here. Accepting these honors made him look arrogant, but refusing them would risk offending the senators. And Livy backs this up, giving a number of instances when Caesar tried to deal with the growing hostility that came with his increasing power by walking this tightrope. One example occurred sometime in late 45 or early 44 BC. The senators were burying Caesar in an avalanche of honors. Just burying Caesar in an avalanche of honors. And what was Caesar to do except accept? Well, that's the thing, Caesar. It seems like you were starting to have a problem with all of these honors, right? There are only so many badges one can wear on one's toga before one's toga falls around one's knees. 
Right. It starts to get like a lot of badges and you're just like, fuck, I can't even wear this shirt anymore because it's all the badges all the time. It's not even fashionable anymore. These were just extraneous honors that the Senate felt like giving me because I was Caesar. Oh, right. Yeah, totally. I could see why they would want to do that. (laughs) And here's the part where I continue to nod up my game. Anyway, some were suggesting Caesar's enemies were behind this. They wanted to make Caesar look like a king. Caesar, probably strategically, would not turn up to accept his honors. Finally, the senators decided that they were going to march right up to Caesar and ram his honors straight down his throat. A group got together and went up to the forum, attracting a crowd along the way. Caesar was sitting on the steps of the Temple of Venus, and according to Etiquette, he had to stand. Etiquette demanded that he stand. Honor was at stake! Honor was at stake! But Caesar didn't stand. It was a massive breach of protocol, so massive that some modern historians have suggested the reason he didn't stand was that he was suddenly struck with another of his dizzy spells and was trying to cover it up. Caesar made a self-deprecating joke about how he really didn't need any more honors. Nobody laughed. Isn't funny, Caesar. It was an insult to the senators and the common people. And there were other instances as well. One involved someone in a crowd shouting Rex at Caesar. And Rex means king. So when you're talking about the Tyrannosaurus Rex, you're talking about the king of the lizards. And Regal also comes from Rex. You know, the Rick and Alaric also comes from Rex. It comes from the word Reichs, which was a Germanic word that came from the Latin. And they had to use the Latin because the Germanic people didn't actually have a concept of king the way that the Romans did. So they used the Roman word for it. And as people were shouting Rex at Caesar, he tried to laugh this off. But things escalated to the point where some tribunes had the man arrested, inciting public fury. And Caesar considered putting the tribunes to death. He didn't. He just had them stripped of their offices. It looks kind of tyrant-like to suppress people calling him a tyrant. So he was pissed off at these tribunes just sort of leaping in and arresting this guy and was like, well, I have to make a giant public stand now by executing them. But he didn't wind up executing them. But he did kick them out of their jobs, so... He did. So he was like showing like, oh, you can't do this. People must have their voice, even though I totally agree with you. And this is ridiculous. What are we going to do this guy after dark? So in another, someone tied a Greek diadem, the white ribbon of Macedonian royalty that Cleopatra wore around a statue of Caesar. No one could find the perpetrators and Caesar was furious. And I just want to stop for a minute because we've already talked about Caesar being king. But what I took out of this was that essentially they were saying that Caesar was beholding to Cleopatra. He was beholding to Egypt. Yeah, and there was kind of a um, a rumor going around that Cleopatra's master plan in seducing Caesar was taking over Rome. So putting the diadem on Caesar was kind of like saying, now you're a Macedonian ruler, or maybe you're Cleopatra's bitch. I think it's pretty much your Cleopatra's bitch. And let's be honest, he kind of was. And all of those reforms that we're talking about, they're to make Rome more like Alexandria, which you can see from a common person's point of view, like, are you trying to just combine the two? Is Alexandria going to rule us? Egypt was, and we've talked about this many times, it was the, it was where all the grain came from. Well, you know, I know what Caesar would have said here. Oh, you do? You know what Caesar would have said? I think so. I think as the person who did all of this research and who has read the commentaries cover to cover multiple times, I think I have an idea what Caesar would say. I think, and Caesar, back me up on this. I'm going to guess. I might be wrong. I think he would say that what he was trying to do was bring the best parts of Alexandria to Rome and leave off the worst parts. That was exactly Caesar's plan. See, I told you. However, some of the best parts that Caesar was trying to bring to Rome were the parts about how Caesar got to be a king and a god. So Caesar does not disagree, but these were the best parts. There we go. And your besties. Julius Caesar, will you be my bestie? Caesar would like to think we could be besties in a world where you acknowledge the absoluteness of Julius Caesar. 
I don't think that world exists, buddy. Then you should do as Julius Caesar did and make that world. (laughs) Oh, my God. Fuck off. (laughs) So now I'm going to tell them all about Lupercalia. Yeah, now I want to tell you all about Lupercalia because this is like the most exciting thing ever. Because Mark Antony's in this part. Yeah, and guys... Ooh, I got such a crush on Mark Antony. Jen, you have a total boner for Mark Antony. I don't have a boner. I have a raging agenda. <laughs> He's in a loincloth in this part. I have a total lady raging agenda. <laughs> I think raging agendas are gender neutral. I think so too. So perhaps the most dangerous incident was the one that happened at Lupercalia. Lupercalia was an annual fertility festival associated with the city's founder, Romulus, during which the priests made a sacrifice and then, wearing nothing but loincloths, ran around the city, as you do, man, striking people with strips of skin from the sacrificed animal. And this was usually goat skin. Women would stand in the way of the runners, holding their hands out to be smacked, because this was believed to help fertility. Mark Antony was head priest of Caesar's state-sponsored cult, so Mark Antony was leading the runners around town. And, you know, this is kind of what he does anyway, so why not make his job? You mean running around town naked in a loincloth? (laughs) Absolutely smacking people with strips of goat skin. Yes, this is the role he was born for. There's a lot of goat skin spanking related jobs on his LinkedIn resume. I hope he visits us next season. And maybe he will. I have no control over that, Jen. Jen's the one in charge of inviting guests on the podcast, so. (laughs) What are we going to do when we actually have real guests (laughs) who I'm not channeling through the eons? I'm going to try to keep them away from the historical guests because we don't want to subject our living guests to that bullshit. Or maybe we do. Anyway, at the end of the festivities, the runners congregated in the forum. Caesar was speaking in the rostra, which had been rebuilt as part of Caesar's massive redesign of the forum. The rostra was the speaker's platform, like a big stage where the speakers could address the crowds. Its name meant the beaks because it bristled with the bronze-covered rams of warships that had been captured in war. The old rostra used to be in the center of the forum, but when Caesar had rebranded Rome's public buildings, he put the new rostra off in the corner. This is kind of a bad sign for Caesar's opinion of public speakers, according to Barry Strauss. Caesar basically, like, just rebranded Rome's public buildings and took away the vote at the same time. Anyway, so Caesar was sitting on the rostra wearing his red thigh-high boots, his drapey toga picta, his golden laurel wreath, and no doubt a self-satisfied smirk and probably no underwear. Please don't invite him on this podcast and ask him that because I don't want to know where it's going to go. Caesar, were you wearing underwear? I'm not opening that channel. (laughs) Oh, I forgot you had your underwear, Gesa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't talk about underwear with Jen. Mark Antony climbed up onto the rostra and put a diadem on Caesar's head, saying that the people had awarded it to Caesar through him. A marked silence fell over the crowd. A few people groaned and rolled their eyes. Ugh, I roll. So they tried again. Caesar took the diadem off and Antony put it back on his head again. The groans only got louder. Ugh. I can't believe he's doing it again. Now I'd get the hint the second time. They tried this several more times and the crowd just got more pissed off. Stop it, Caesar. Stop it. Stop it. Finally, Caesar tried to pull this out by sending the diadem to the Capitoline Hill, basically returning it with the message, Jupiter alone of the Romans is king. Later, Caesar had it written down in the official calendar that Mark Antony had offered him the kingship, but Caesar had refused. And I just gotta say, this is just a weird scene, right? I was 
was kind of reading about this and having a hard time deciding what to make of it. Julius Caesar, what the hell? What was going on? Julius Caesar decided it was time to see if the people were ready to accept my divinity. So Julius Caesar spoke to High Priest Mark Antony and had him suggest that I wear my diadem of divinity. However, people did not seem ready to embrace my divinity. So we tried three times to give them the gloriousness of my divinity, but... I have a question. Like, after it went bad the first time, did you think it was going to go better the second time and the third time? I did not believe it would go better the second time or the third time, but Mark Antony was drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're kicking it back to Mark Antony, are we? Interesting. Okay. Poor Mark Antony had already imbibed too much on his running. We allowed him to offer me the crown two more times before we decided divinity is not something that can be bestowed upon you. It is something you already possess. So now we're talking about ourselves in the third person plural. Interesting choice. It is called the royal we. Oh my God, this podcast is devolved. Caesar, are you drunk? (laughs) (laughs) Crickets. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. According to Barry Strauss, quote, Caesar was always looking over his shoulder at Sulla, the dictator who preceded him. Where Sulla was brutal, Caesar was mild. For example, Caesar replaced Sulla's executions with pardons. Instead of running public prescriptions, Caesar invited people who'd fought against him back into the city for very public reconciliations and gave them jobs in his government. Just like... Caligula would do all those years in the future. Yeah, Caligula was taking a page from Uncle Caesar's playbook there. Yeah, I mean, Caligula was also someone who declared himself a living god. Yeah, so, you know. Maybe it was always going to end with a stabby stab when you're sort of modeling yourself after someone who got the stabby stab. (laughs) Who got the stabby stab. (laughs) (laughs) So all of these pardons were not enough to stop the people from hating Julius Caesar for making himself a king. And despite the fact that all his big enemies were dead, and he was the one who controlled the army, Caesar's position in Rome was still not quite solidified. But Caesar had grand, elaborate plans for outside of Rome. Maybe he was nostalgic for his time as a general when people just did what he said without giving him shit. Because around this time, Julius Caesar started planning his most ambitious military campaign yet, the conquest of Parthia, which was a terrible idea. Big mistake. Nothing good could come of trying to invade Parthia. Just ask Crassus, who once again has weaseled his way back into this episode. That's where his head was currently residing. It was being used as part of a Bacchanal presentation, or uh, maybe he had gold poured down his throat. We don't know exactly. My impression was his head was now part of the prop department. It was. It was used in some, like, it was a play. I think it was the Bacchae, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. Which reminded me, I have never read it and now need to read it. Now we need to read it and figure out where it was that Crassus's head made its theatrical debut. Totally. So anyway, we've been over the fact that Parthia was a bad idea, but Caesar had still planned to do this invasion of Parthia. Parthians had the amazing archers and horse lords and ladies. You don't want to mess with them. But Caesar thought he was invincible at this point, despite the fact that his health was maybe a little questionable. He was still having dizzy spells and also night terrors. Yeah, see, Caesar, I know about the night terrors. I know all your secrets. I also know about that freaky dream where you tried to have sex with your mom. I know all of it. Wait, what? (laughs) It's in Plutarch. (laughs) Okay, first off, let's just remember, Plutarch was high all the time on flying ointment. We don't know how reliable it is, but second... 
Tell me about this dream. I talked about it in Julius Caesar and the Point of No Return. I don't remember. You have to refresh me and the audience. Jen has blocked that entire episode out of her mind, so I will... Re- yes, I have. I will re- <laughs> remind you. I don't know why. It's not our most offensive episode. I could see you blocking the Hound of Ulster out of your mind. Oh, I didn't even know I recorded that. I blocked out. <laughs> <laughs> it was mas- basically just Cucullin the whole time. I was just the conduit. I don't remember any of it. So anyway, I was trying to say that according to Plutarch, the night before he crossed the Rubicon, Julius Caesar had a dream where he was having sex with his mom. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. How did Plutarch know that? Like, did Julius Caesar tell him? Like, how did that get out there? (laughs) I don't know, Jen. I'm sorry. I'm now stuck around the axle. You better keep reading and I'm just going to grind away. I'm going to let you sort of gnaw on that in your corner. So despite this, despite his dizzy spells, despite his night terrors, despite the fact that it's a really crap idea to attack the Parthians, Caesar set about raising another massive army. Along the way, he passed a new law which allowed him to appoint all government officials including consuls and tribunes. Now, the people didn't even get to vote for their own tribunes. Caesar controlled everything. He'd rebranded the entire Republican government complex, giving them lavish new public spaces with his name all over them with one hand, and with the other hand, taking the people's government away from them. If you're starting to get a little stabby here, you're not alone. After defeating Pompey's sons in 45 BC, Caesar did something that continues to baffle historians today, and also his friends at the time. He dismissed his Spanish bodyguard who had protected him on campaign. And why? Why, Caesar? It wasn't that nobody was conspiring against Caesar. People were definitely conspiring against him. Some of his enemies even enlisted his secretary to poison him. And when Caesar found out, he elected to skip the usual torture and give the guy a swift, merciful execution. Poisoners usually got tortured to give up the people who were involved in the plot. And it was also to like really make an example to tell people who were your servants, like if you get found out, it's going to be awful. It's to keep the people around you loyal by like showing them like a fate worse than death if they were to betray you. If you can't rule them by love, rule them by fear. Absolutely. Which again is something Caligula would say, let them hate me as long as they fear me. I know, Caligula keeps coming up. When you're being compared to Caligula, maybe you're not doing things right. I wonder if I'll ever have anybody do a thing on my life where Caligula keeps coming up. I hope not. So... People were bringing Caesar rumors every day, and he mainly just shrugged them off, as you do, Caesar. Plutarch says many of his friends tried to talk him out of dismissing his Spanish bodyguards, and they even volunteered to guard him themselves. But Caesar said, quote, it was better to die once and for all than to always be expecting death. People suggested all kinds of reasons for this. Maybe it was arrogance. Maybe Caesar trusted the oaths of the senators. They'd all sworn to protect him with their lives. Maybe he thought his countrymen feared the civil war the country would plunge back into if he died. In hindsight, some of Caesar's friends saw the dismissing of the bodyguard as a kind of suicide, maybe because of his failing health, maybe because he was a man of action and dreaded a slow lingering death. They thought of this as a move designed to tempt the conspirators to take action. I don't know. I mean, I kind of think that's unlikely. I think if Caesar wanted to commit suicide, he would have just stabbed himself. I mean, he knew how. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think maybe this was like a bit of a honey trap. I mean, this is my personal speculation. He's trying to make it really easy for his conspirators to come against him. And then he'd be able to see who was loyal to him and who wasn't in a sort of controlled way and get rid of them. I mean, he didn't need his bodyguard if the people were loyal. And if he 
he's believing the people are loyal and he's got his friends around him, then what does he need to fear? He's packed the Senate with his friends. Like, come at me. All the Senate was supposed to have taken oaths to protect his person. Exactly. So if you want to come against me, like, come at me, bro. Caesar, what are your thoughts on this? Why did you dismiss your Spanish bodyguard? If Caesar cannot walk amongst his people and his friends and the best men of Rome without fear, then Caesar is no Caesar. So that's the official line. From the girl who hasn't done the research. The girl who's got the direct line to Caesar, though. I respect that. Barry Strauss, in his book, The Death of Caesar, suggests a different reason. Not a different reason from, well, it's actually the kind, kind of the same reason. Barry Strauss is going to expand on what Caesar just said. Quote, To the Roman mind, a bodyguard in the city of Rome smacked of regnum, monarchy. Far from having a bodyguard, a Roman senator was supposed to be easy to approach. Accessibility was the mark of a free society. Even Sulla honored this code. When he stepped down as dictator, he dismissed his bodyguard and walked through the streets of Rome untouched, supposedly guarded only by his reputation. This, although he still had plenty of enemies, and although once years earlier he was attacked in Rome by men with hidden daggers. Caesar, we might conclude, wanted to do Sulla one better and give up his body guard even while he was still a dictator. Caesar was aware that conspiracies swirled around him, but people brought him news of conspiracies every day. Someone was always out to kill him, and Caesar refused to live in fear. And you know, I support that Caesar. He preferred to trust in the oaths and the goodwill and the fear his people had of another civil war, and walk around like there wasn't any danger. Which was why, if he did hear another conspiracy was brewing, he may have just shrugged it off. At least, that's what we think. But we'll never know his real motivations, because... He's not going to tell us. Caesar's been pretty forthcoming, but he tells us what he wants us to know. Yeah, exactly. He gives us his spin. Like, he's still spinning beyond the grave. We got Caesar on this podcast. I don't know how Jen finagled that, but Caesar tells us what he wants us to hear, and you have to take it with a grain of salt. A giant salt lick. And remember, ancient history fans, don't ever lick anything from the ancient world. Don't believe anything Caesar tells you outright. Don't lick Julius Caesar. You don't know where he's been. It's my policy. Well, I mean, that is very wise, Jenny Williamson. Do not lick Julius Caesar. Is that Julius Caesar telling me not to lick him? That is me. I have my own voice. That sounded like him. You're sounding like him now. Too late. It's gone too far. Now I'll never get Jen back. It's just Julius Caesar for the rest of the podcast. Anyway, (laughs) clawing my way back to my own consciousness. Here's the thing. Caesar probably should have been more on his guard because among the aristocracy, the plebeian class, and his own soldiers, a large and secret movement to assassinating him was building steam. One soldier. Nicholas of Damascus tells us there could have been as many as 80 main conspirators. They met in secret, never all at once, and never in the open, only at small, private house parties, a few of them at a time. Somehow, Perhaps through fear of being exposed themselves, the secret was kept. There were people from all walks of life in the conspiracy to kill Caesar. Some had fought for Pompey or had once had ties to the best men. But others were Caesar's own troops, close friends, and people who owed everything to him, including their lives. Seneca states that there were more of Caesar's friends involved in the conspiracy than his enemies. Nicholas of Damascus claims that most of these people were driven by petty grievances. And here's where Caesar's clemency came back to bite him. It grated on people. Some conspirators had been spared by Caesar, and they hated him for it. Like Cato and Pompey, they didn't want to owe their lives to Caesar's generosity. And you can kind of understand this. These were really proud people who 
saw Caesar as a tyrant and didn't see a way around him being king. And they were not going to spend the rest of their days feeling like they owed him one. Yeah. And it was also a really small town. So everybody knew who was and wasn't pardoned by Caesar. And it probably made the rounds of gossip. And remember, everyone's in middle school here. They're all snacking on their Lunchables and gossiping about each other. So Caesar had a habit of sparing and even rewarding people who'd fought against him. Some officers in his own army, men who'd served under Caesar for a long time, who'd sacrificed everything for Caesar and risked much to stay loyal to him, saw him bestowing equal honors and rewards to people who'd fought for Pompey, and this rankled. There were those among Caesar's own troops who resented that legionaries who'd fought for Pompey were now enrolled in Caesar's army and got the same pay as everyone else. Some soldiers were furious that former prisoners of war were equal to them. Some of Caesar's soldiers were even outranked by men they'd formerly taken prisoner. Petty shit. No, it's not. I think this is such petty shit. We go back and forth on this. This is where we completely differ, and I'm really glad we do, because we get to talk about both sides of this, because you have to remember that Caesar was in power because of the fact that the people loved him and the army loved him, and the people in the army that we've talked about, the soldiers in the army, these are men who loyally followed Caesar for years and years, and they'd worked hard, and they made him king. It was their backs and their lives and their brothers in arms who actually made him dictator. And now, after all that, you're going to have Pompey soldiers come in at the same rank as me? You're going to have prisoners of war be higher up in your army? No, Caesar. No, that's not how loyalty works. I think that this is some petty ass bullshit. I think that the opposite is not how loyalty works. It's like you believe in this person and you're fighting for him. Who gives a shit what titles people have or what you call people or fucking concentrate on your own shit and don't compare yourself to other people. Yeah, see, that's really easy to say when you're not indoctrinated into such a strong hierarchy. All of those military ladders that you had to climb to get to different places really meant a lot. They meant your whole life. People who served in the military were there for 10 or 20 years. They had worked 10 or 20 years to get to where they are. And now Caesar's kind of just wiping the slate clean and letting people in at the same level as them when they're like, I'm sorry, didn't we conquer these people the other day? What was that about if we're all equal now? I mean, they just didn't like equality. No, I think it goes beyond that. I think when you have such a rigid hierarchy and then you try to wipe the slates clean, like that hierarchy that they have bred into these men is about being loyal to one person and one group of people. Like we've talked about how the Contraburnium was eight people who you slept with and you lived and you died with. They were your entire world. We had an legion earlier in the last episode who agreed to be decimated to get back into Caesar's good graces. And now, what? He's just going to make everyone the same? Well, what was the point of being part of this hierarchy? What's the part of working really hard to rise up in the ranks? If you don't get to lord it over other people, if you don't get to feel more powerful than someone below you because of your own petty bullshit. I don't think it's petty bullshit. I think it has to do with how hierarchy in this service works. Like everyone has a role and no one is going to do the role at the bottom of the ladder if everyone at the top of the ladder just gets there because they get to be there. It only matters that they had to work as hard as you're working now to get there. I'm from a corporate background. I work for a big company and hierarchy matters. It matters that you put your time in and you do the work. And I think we come at this from two different sides. We're so different because I'm a freelancer and I am an outside cat and like, 
friends of mine who work in corporate environments will sometimes tell me about office politics. And to me, because I'm not indoctrinated in it, because my world isn't hierarchical, I just think this is some petty ass bullshit right here. I can see why you feel that way. But I also want to remind you to why this is important to Julius Caesar's army. Let's go back to Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix's army was all a bunch of outside cat freelancers who were these great epic warriors. And it took so much work to make them into an army who could go against Caesar. But Caesar's army were all indoctrinated. They were all people who believed in the greater cause and they believed in their general and they believed in their hierarchy. So this breakdown that you're seeing now in his army is a real problem if he wants to go take on the Parthians. It shows the fault line. This structure allowed them to defeat Vercingetorix. They wouldn't have been able to do it without that, but it's also showing the weak spots in it that ultimately led to its undoing. Yeah, and I've been very lucky to work in publishing, which is egalitarian and allows for a lot more creativity. But what I'm trying to say is I can see how working really hard for something for a really long time. And it's like your parents say, if you get an A in this class, you can have like a new bike. So you work really, really, really hard all semester and you get an A in this class and you get a new bike and your brother's also there and he wants a new bike. And they're like, well, we'll just get you both new bikes, even though your brother only got Bs. I would kill them. In their sleep. There you go. That's how they felt, Jenny. Anyway. (laughs) I just proved the fault in your logic. So let's keep going. Yeah. So there was some petty ass bullshit going on, in my opinion. And you just said you'd kill your own siblings. So let's move on. Sometimes I'm a petty ass person too, as Jen just proved. But not everyone's grievances were so petty. I wouldn't say petty. Not everyone's grievances were like that. Okay. Petty. They were petty. They're not petty. You're wrong here. I just disagree. I think it's like, who moved my fucking cheese? Oh, God. Who moved my cheese? I've read that book so many times. Why did you have to read Who Moved My Cheese so many times, Jen? This happened a lot in America. Every time there was like a new like CEO or something, they'd like make you read Who Moved My Cheese, which is all about like dealing with change in a corporate environment and how we're all like little rats and the cheese gets moved. And what does that mean? We're all rats in a maze and somebody moves our deeply unimportant object that's become maniacally important to us because it's all the maze scientists will let us have. So now we need a whole book to deal with it so that the corporate leaders don't get stabbed in their sleep. But it has been one of the best-selling business books for like, I don't know, 50 years. Caesar maybe should have issued Who Moved My Cheese to everybody in his legions and then he would not have had this problem. He would have had this problem because he's changing the hierarchical structure, which takes a lot of thinking. Emotional labor. Petting and stroking. Stuff that Caesar was really good at doing up until this point. Remember, Caesar had so many mutinies that he got through. There are some people whose grievances I can kind of understand. There were those who held a grudge against Caesar for things that happened during the Civil War, like loss of property, the death of loved ones. These people have real beefs. And a few conspirators were jealous of Caesar's power, and they wanted to take his place. So some of them were just assholes. But the conspirators had to move very carefully. They couldn't just stab Caesar out in the open and be done with it. They had to actually think through the stabby stab. The reason was they had to make sure their actions were perceived by the public in the right light. They were plotting to kill a dictator and the next thing to a king and god, yes. But they were also plotting to kill a beloved populist leader with a fanatically loyal army. If the angry mob couldn't be persuaded that their actions were just, the assassins might not survive Caesar very long. They needed the people to see them not as murderers, but as heroes who'd restored the Republic to the people. And that's where Brutus comes into this story. Brutus was the son of Servilia, Caesar's long-term lover and possibly one of his key political allies. Plutarch tells us that he was descended on his mother's side from another famous stabby person, a guy named Servilia Sahala, who stabbed someone in the neck in the forum because he thought the guy was plotting to make himself a king. 
Do not act like you might be plotting to make yourself a king around Servilius Ahala. Do you know what Brutus's family line? Do you know what they could be called? Kingslayers. Yes! Brutus the Kingslayer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. On his father's side, one of his ancestors was believed to have helped oppose the Tarquins, the mythical villainous tyrant kings of the era just before the Republic. You can kind of see already why Brutus was the ideal public face for the conspiracy. He was upstanding, respected, known for his fine character, and he was also a nephew of Cato, because remember, Servilia was Cato's half-sister, although they didn't get along, because Servilia and Caesar were longtime lovers who were definitely sending nudes. Yeah, they were sending nudes and people found out about it very publicly. Because Cato could not keep himself to himself and keep in his own business. Nope. Never ask someone to read a note aloud in class unless you know what that note is going to say. Again, very middle school. It's like when the teacher reads a note in class <laughs> and reads it aloud and you're like, oh, you should not be reading that aloud. You're like, nope, nope. Going to just nope right out of that. Nope. Brutus was descended from tyrant killers, king slayers on both sides. Nobody could miss the message. If it was Brutus who killed Caesar, he'd lend the conspiracy's legitimacy because nobody would question his high-minded motives because this is such a ridiculous theory. I mean, it's sort of like cartoon logic, right? It's not even cartoon logic. It's like literary criticism logic. It's like reading Shakespeare and like picking out what the author was trying to say. It's not really taking into account that like common people don't see the big significance in everything. Right. Or like that it might just have a bigger impact than you think. It's like, oh, if we just tell this really, really good story. I mean, stories are powerful. Don't get me wrong. But like. Totally. I mean, we're telling one now. Right. But it's just like this fallacy that we can, by choosing the right avatar with the right background, we can control the narrative from all sides. No. Brutus's dad had rebelled against Sulla in 77 BC and had been killed by Pompey. Brutus would have been about eight years old. As a result, Brutus absolutely loathed Pompey growing up and refused even to speak to him in public. Even so, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, Brutus swallowed his hatred and joined Pompey for the sake of his principles. Caesar looked out for Brutus despite this, probably at Servilia's request. When he rode into Pompey's camp after the Battle of Pharsalus, after defeating Pompey for good, it's said he was extremely keen to find Brutus and gave out orders that he was not to be hurt. When Brutus was brought to him alive, Caesar was extremely pleased. After the Civil War, Brutus surrendered and apologized to Caesar. Caesar forgave him and made him governor of Gaul. Sulla would have had Brutus's head hanging in the rostra, but Caesar gave him a job. In Caesar's room, Brutus was a favorite. Plutarch tells us he, quote, had as large a share in Caesar's power as he wished. Brutus owed his life and his career to Caesar, and he had a lot to lose by deposing him. So why did he turn? Caesar, do you have any insight to shed on that? Even thousands of years later, Caesar still regrets the choice that Brutus made. Oh, that's so sad. But why did he turn? Why do you think he turned? I don't think he wants to talk about it. It's a sore subject. I understand. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to poke the poke the soreness. Lots of love, Caesar. Thank you. Caesar appreciates your condolences. I'm sending you hugs. Caesar graciously accepts your hugs. Aww. So moving on, Plutarch tells us Brutus was motivated by high-minded ideals about restoring the Republic, and he wasn't alone. A lot of senators wanted and even expected Caesar to give the Republic back to its people now that he'd driven Pompey out. But Caesar was taking the opposite tack, positioning himself as a king and a god, stacking the Senate with his own supporters and declaring himself dictator for life. 
But that wasn't the only reason. Another was his wife. Brutus had been married to a woman named Claudia, but after coming home from the Civil War, he divorced his wife without giving cause, this caused a scandal, and married his cousin, Portia, because incest is best, you guys. Portia was Cato's daughter, and she'd been the wife of Bibulus before marrying Brutus. It's quite possible that Brutus's new wife had something to do with his break with Caesar. Both her dad and her former husband had hated Caesar as much as it's possible to hate anyone to hate that guy. And it seems Portia inherited Cato's proud, unrelenting nature. It's said she stabbed herself in the thigh in order to prove her resolve and strength to Brutus. We'll get to that story. At some point in 45 BC, the walls of the city began to speak to Brutus. Someone was orchestrating an anonymous guerrilla marketing campaign of graffiti all over the city that called on Brutus to do something about Rome's Caesar problem because Brutus was the king slayer. According to Barry Strauss in The Death of Caesar, quote, tags like, here we go, Jen, are you ready? We're going to speak like the walls of Rome. Mm-hmm. If only now you were Brutus. If only Brutus were alive. Brutus, wake up. You aren't really Brutus. All of these tags appeared on the walls, deliberately targeting Brutus. And Brutus had already staked his reputation on his family's famous love of liberty, and now he had to uphold it. Barry Strauss puts Brutus's motivations down to self-interest, pride, and a drive to live up to his family's reputation as Kingslayers. I can tell you what, I've watched Game of Thrones, that won't go well. People who kingslay often are not necessarily universally admired afterwards. Brutus also faced pressure from his wife and the fact that he'd looked up to Cato, who'd committed suicide rather than live under Caesar's rule. It sounds good, but we'll never really know, and Brutus isn't around to ask, and Caesar doesn't want to talk about their relationship, so... All right, fine, we'll give him that. And you have to ask yourself, what was the end game here? The conspirators were not a monolith. Some were conservatives, some were populists, all had their own reasons for wanting Caesar dead, and most were not motivated by lofty Republican ideals. They had to stick to a goal they could all agree on, because to alienate just one person risked that person taking the whole plan to Caesar. But that was tough because they all had different ideas of what should happen next. The conservatives, those who wanted the Republic to go back to the way it was, believed they couldn't do that by killing just Caesar. They had to kill all his supporters, too, including Mark Antony. I mean, Mark Antony is so much fun. Who would want to kill him? Because they're bummers and they don't want to have Mark Antony around. So they pushed for a purge. Purges are a bummer. Yeah. But other people, especially the soldiers in the conspiracy who'd benefited a ton from Caesar's reforms and land grants, didn't want this. They wanted Caesar dead, but all the honors he'd bestowed on them to stay intact. And it was dangerous to lose the support of the army, so the conservatives had to tread carefully here. Eventually, Brutus called it no purge and no killing Mark Antony because Mark Antony is a really good time. He thought Antony could be brought to their side once Caesar was dead. And he thought that once Caesar was out of the picture, his supporters would easily capitulate and let them have the Republic back. Cut off the snake's head, the snake dies. I mean, it, this is really limited logic here. It's really hard to believe, but somehow the conspirators managed to keep their secret plan secret. It's quite possible Servilia knew she was, as we've said before, the consummate back-channel politician. And remember, Servilia was Brutus's mom. And Cato's sister. Her son is married to her niece. Let's not try and think too much about that. So we don't have much information about what Servilia was up to before Caesar's murder. No spoilers. But 
After Caesar died, she emerged as an important voice on the anti-Caesar side, which was dangerous in the time just after Caesar died, and you'll see why. So it's quite possible she was involved. One person Brutus told he was not on the list of conspirators, however, was his wife. Thayot tells us that Portia came upon him while he was deep in thought, pondering the upcoming assassination. She asked him what he was thinking of, and when he wouldn't tell her, she worried that he thought her weak, and that she couldn't be trusted to keep his secrets, especially under torture. And I have a hunch that she was a good back-channel politician with her finger on the pulse and basically already knew what Brutus was thinking of and she just wanted him to say it aloud. Portia already knew, right? And one of the things that could happen, she's figuring, like, maybe Caesar would capture her and try to torture all this information out of her about this conspiracy that might be happening. And she wanted Brutus to be reassured that she could withstand the torture of Caesar. I mean, please don't bust out the whips and chains. I'm definitely not into that. It's like, actually, I would do great if Caesar felt like torturing me. I have been fantasizing about this for months. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Portia thought her husband wouldn't confide in her because he thought she couldn't withstand the torture if she was captured by Caesar. No, Caesar, please don't bust out the hot tongs. Oh, the nipple clamps. The suspension gear. Oh, oh no. God, <laughs> the sex swing. Oh, this is terrible. Please don't bring out the horse phallus. My safe word is Venus the Unconquered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying. So, Portia, here's what Portia did in order to <laughs> prove to Brutus that she could withstand the sex dungeon of Caesar. She stabbed herself in the thigh, a deep wound, and then showed the wound to Brutus saying, you, my husband, though you trusted my spirit that it would not betray you, nevertheless, you were distrustful of my body. Oh! (laughs) And your feeling was but human. But I have found that my body can also keep its silence. Venus the Unconquered! (laughs) Except when I'm moaning in pleasure slash pain. Oh! She declared that no amount of torture could ever force her to divulge her husband's secrets, but she really hoped Caesar would try. (laughs) And if Brutus didn't trust her, she wasn't worthy to be called Cato's daughter or his wife. Brutus was totally seduced by this. Oh my god, my wife is really kinky. Oh, Brutus. I didn't know you were so kinky. Look, it's always the quiet ones, Jen. It totally is. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think he divorced his other wife in such a hurry? Mm. Anyway, Brutus told Portia everything because... Because he couldn't keep it to himself any longer. He had a raging pro-Portia agenda. (laughs) He did. He just had to explode (laughs) all his secrets. Oh, no, 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 no. Dial it back. (laughs) I mean, you're the one who brought up the horse phallus. That was you. (laughs) That's not how I'm going to remember this. (laughs) (laughs) I have the recorded evidence. Yeah, you're going to delete that. Oh, that's what you think. (laughs) We've been over this. If you say it in the recording, it is fair game. I'm just imagining Brutus in his gimp outfit. (laughs) In his what outfit? His like leather, like, you know, gimp mask. (laughs) What's a gimp outfit? If you've seen American Horror Story, you know what I mean. I am picturing Brutus in a PVC leather outfit, though, right now. Yeah, with the mask on his face. You can't see his face with the zipper mask. I bet Brutus had had that getup. I bet he did, too. I'm not sure when zippers were invented, actually, but... Okay, it would have been stitched up or buttoned. There might have been buttons. There might have been, like, a... Might have been a brooch over his mouth. Brooch? (laughs) Please stop. Please stop. Please brooch. 
face brooches were a thing for this particular reason. I mean, there wouldn't be PVC anyway, so it doesn't matter. All right, we're skipping over that detail. <laughs> Portia is down to clown for this whole thing. Oh, leather daddy Brutus. I'm so down. You do you, Portia. You get yours. You deserve it. There is no kink shaming on this podcast. Goddamn right. <laughs> Moving on, the conspirators debated where and when to do the deed. They considered attacking Caesar near his home on the Via Sacra, the main street near the Forum. They thought about doing it during the elections for consul or the gladiatorial games, where men with sword wouldn't attract undue attention. But none of these plans quite worked. They wanted to make the assassination an act of theater in the hope that the time and location itself would send a message and sway public opinion toward their cause. And this was important because Caesar was very popular with the people and the army. So while the plotters were plotting and while Portia was getting her BDSM on because get yours, girl, get it. Portia needs her biscuit. Portia needs her biscuit. Give the girl her biscuit, for God's sake. Caesar had been planning his enormous invasion of Parthia. His plan was to leave on March 18th, so the conspirators had to act fast. The day they chose was just three days before that, March 15th, the Ides of March. And interestingly enough, this was just a year after Caesar returned from the last battle against Pompey's sons. He wrapped up that battle on March 17th of the previous year, so everything he accomplished after that, he did in just a year and two days. Caesar worked fast. Leading up to the event, there were signs. The night before the Ides, Caesar went to dinner with some friends, one of whom was a conspirator. The conversation turned to which kind of death was the best, and three ancient sources agree that Caesar's choice was sudden and unexpected. Okay. It's true. I feel like I could ask him, but do you think this is a little bit of a sore subject for him still? Oh no, he doesn't want to talk about this. All right, Caesar, you know what? I have deeply mixed feelings about you, but in this case, I'm just going to give you a whole lot of hugs. Aww. That wasn't the only sign. Just before his death, it said that the herd of horses Caesar had dedicated to the Rubicon after his fateful crossing suddenly refused to eat and began to weep. A soothsayer warned Caesar that danger would come no later than the Ides of March. And the day before the Ides, a bird flew into Pompey's works carrying a laurel twig, where it was then torn to pieces by other birds. And then there were the dreams. Cleopatra was in town, and Caesar no doubt spent a lot of his time with her. He still lived with Calpurnia, his wife, and the ancient sources suggest they still had an active sex life. The night before the Ides, Caesar spent the night with Calpurnia. That night, Caesar dreamed he was flying far above the clouds and shook the hand of Jupiter himself. He was woken violently when suddenly all the doors and windows in the bedroom slammed open at once. Calpurnia did not wake up and her sleep was an uneasy one. She was moaning and talking in her sleep, and it turned out she'd been having a nightmare in which she cradled her husband's bleeding body in her arms. That morning, the Senate was supposed to meet at the portico of Pompey. Since the burned-down Senate building was still being reconstructed, Caesar had called the meeting himself, but Calpurnia begged Caesar not to go. Caesar considered it. He'd had an attack of vertigo that morning and still felt kind of sluggish and dizzy. Barry Strauss wondered if this was an attack of Caesar's epilepsy, or potentially the aftermath of a mini stroke. If that's the case, Caesar may not have been thinking clearly that morning. Calpurnia begged her husband not to go to this meeting, and it made sense not to go. Caesar wasn't feeling well, and Calpurnia wasn't known for flights of prophetic fancy. The fact that she was acting this way must mean some extraordinary danger was brewing. Caesar had priests cast omens, and the answers all came back very bad. Caesar even had a conversation with the soothsayer who predicted danger up until the Ides of March. He said, the Ides of March have come, and she responded, they have come, but not gone. 
Caesar wasn't superstitious, but just this once, he decided to listen to the soothsayers and not to go to the Senate meeting. And that decision might have stood if one of the conspirators, a man who'd served with Caesar in Gaul and was now very high placed in his government, hadn't arrived to persuade him otherwise. It said he told Caesar, quote, make your own manly excellence an auspicious omen. And this is a call that would have appealed to Caesar as a master of his own fate. Right, because Caesar always was doing this shit. Caesar overcame a lot to be Caesar. As ancient Romans go in general, he wasn't that superstitious. He didn't listen to the signs importance if they didn't say what he wanted them to say. Totally. And he wasn't going to fear the signs and stay home. It was like him to take initiative and to dare everything. And daring greatly is really what had got him to the position he was in. Exactly. He always showed up when people weren't expecting him and when the signs were bad. Like that's the Caesar playbook. Mm -hmm. So Caesar went to his Senate meeting. Some say that as he walked to the Senate meeting, someone pressed a message into his hands. It warned of the plot to kill him, but Caesar never got time to read it. He entered the portico amidst a crush of people, with Antony at his side, loyal Antony, who was halted at the entrance by a friend of his from the army, someone who'd served with him at the Battle of Elysia, who wanted to reminisce over old times. It was one of the conspirators. Caesar took his seat in his golden chair that was definitely not a throne. You guys, stop comparing it to a throne. It's not a throne. It's totally not a throne, guys. It's fine. Never mind that it's made of gold and nobody else has a gold chair. And raised up on a dais and nobody else can sit in it but Caesar, but it's not a throne. No, totally not. Not at all. Men gathered around him to ask favors. One of the petitioners, a man named Kimber, approached Caesar to ask him to recall his brother from exile. According to Plutarch, the other men crowded around Caesar and asked for clemency for Kimber's brother, quote, kissing his breast and his head, which was clearly an overstep of personal space. Caesar tried to brush them off, but then Kimber seized Caesar by the shoulders, tearing his robe. This shocked Caesar. He was said to have cried, why, this is violence. And that's how the killing started. The first blow came from behind, a man named Casca, standing behind Caesar's chair, thrust his dagger down and it glanced off Caesar's shoulder blade. Caesar managed to grab the handle and then stab his attacker in the arm with the point of his stylus. How it went down from here varies depending on the sources. Appian has Caesar flinging one of his attackers away violently, bellowing at the assassins. Most other sources say he fought back to some degree or another. And most agree that when he saw Brutus among the attackers, he lost hope. Shakespeare says his last words were, et tu, Brute. These resemble the last words Suetonius puts in his mouth. You too, my child, in Greek. Other sources say that when he caught sight of Brutus, Caesar simply stopped fighting and covered his face with his robe, just as Pompey had done two years ago on a beach far away. What happened next was a panic-fueled bloodbath. Over 20 men descended on Caesar, stabbing and stabbing. Some even wounded each other in the confusion. Brutus was stabbed in the hand. They kept stabbing after Caesar was dead so that all of them could say they had had a hand in killing him. Everyone was covered in blood by the time it was over. In a final irony, Caesar bled out and died at the feet of a statue of Pompey. Wow. Contemplate the irony for a second. Just sit with it. I am. All right. There are eight ancient sources that agree on the number of stab wounds he had. 23. Somebody counted. Nicholas of Damascus says there were 35. Only one, a wound to the chest, was fatal. It's said that the message someone had tried to give him earlier, warning of the conspiracy, was found rolled up in one hand, still unread. The conspirators were not the only people in the room. There were other senators, not involved in the plot. 
Barry Strauss estimates there were at least 200 senators present, the minimum required for a quorum, plus secretaries, assistants, and slaves, and maybe 300 more people gathered outside. The assassins, particularly Brutus, hoped that once they got things going, all the other senators would enthusiastically support them. Maybe even join in. I mean, they just really thought that this was just going to sweep everybody up. They even hoped that Cicero might step forward and fill the power vacuum right there, delivering a rousing, impromptu speech that reestablished in one fell swoop the republic as it had been. But that's not what happened. Instead, what happened was that people panicked. And let me tell you, that's deeply unfair on Cicero. I give him a lot of shit, but how was he going to know you were going to brutally stab someone in front of him and then want him to like jump up and give this impassioned speech? How did they know that Cicero would have just had the perfect speech for if Caesar was stabbed, break the glass and give this speech? I don't think Cicero was quite prepared for this. And I don't think that the conspirators were prepared for how fucking traumatizing it would be to have somebody stabbed to death in front of them. Well, and I think a lot of these best men didn't have a lot of experience killing people. I think some of them did and some of them didn't. The sense that I get is that they just kind of saw this in very mythic terms, but they weren't thinking in terms of real people and how real people might feel about it. They saw this as if they were reading the annals of history, of where they stood against the Great Republic. It's like they were writing the story of it like as it was happening. Exactly. They didn't think about what it would feel like to live that story and what it would feel like to plunge that knife into Caesar. What they actually found was this is awful. <laughs> this is fucking awful, regardless of how you feel about Caesar. It's kind of awful to witness somebody being stabbed to death by a whole group of people. 23 times. Or maybe 35 times if you listen to Nicholas of Damascus. Probably 23 because a lot more people say 23. If you were standing outside Pompey's portico that day, here's what you would have seen. Because there would have been a lot of people outside Pompey's portico. Like, not everyone was allowed to go into the Senate building while the Senate was convening. But all these people were really important and they all had a lot of hangers on. So there would have been people, you know, hanging out outside waiting for their senator or whoever to come back out. So if you're one of the people in the crowd outside Pompey's portico that day, here's what you would have seen. A massive crowd of terrified senators suddenly rushing outside, shouting incoherently, followed by a smaller crowd of men covered in blood, clutching bared blades in their hands. Because this is what democracy looks like. I mean, these people do not have their shit together. No, they don't. Everyone outside the portico panicked. Nobody knew what was going on, and rumors spread like wildfire. A troop of gladiators had attacked the Senate building. Caesar's army had attacked the Senate building. New Sulla-style prescriptions were starting up again. The entire Senate had turned into werewolves. Nobody knew what was going on. I mean, that actually makes some sense. Maybe they did. Oh. (laughs) Woof, woof. (laughs) Are you moving on? The assassins tried to control the situation. They rushed into the streets, shouting to the public that they should all calm down. Just calm down, everyone. Calm down. Guys, just calm the fuck down. It's all okay. I'm going to use it in exactly this way of speaking with my teeth gritted. Calm the fuck down. Everyone calm down while waving my bloody knife in your face. Because listen, what they had done wasn't murder. It was only the killing of a tyrant. All these guys were covered in blood with knives in their hands. So chances are, no matter what they said, they were not going to calm anyone down. Plus, if you've ever been in an argument with somebody who was telling you very angrily to calm down, obviously that's not going to make you calm down. It's just going to make you angrier. It's going to make you want to rip off their head with your teeth. (laughs) 
That's also like if anyone ever says to you, oh, is it that time of the month? Like, no. Even if it is, even if you know you're being unreasonable, that's it. <laughs> right. Or like, don't be so emotional. Or why are you being so emotional? So these guys are running around town, waving their knives in the air and demanding that the public not be so emotional. A crowd gathered as they paraded through the streets, waving their blades, shouting for people to just calm down and not be so emotional. And why is it that time of the month? Heading straight for the Capitoline Hill as violence and looting spread throughout the city. Some senators hid in their houses and locked the doors. Mark Antony snuck back to his house in disguise because Caesar used to sneak everywhere and Mark Antony totally looked up to Caesar. Meanwhile, Caesar's body lay where it fell for hours, blood pooling on the marble floor at the feet of Pompey's statue. Cicero was there that day. He was an eyewitness. He talks about how Caesar's body lay bleeding and motionless on the floor in Pompey's building, in front of the statue of Pompey, slaughtered in front of his own hand-picked senate. The irony was, he said, quote, that Caesar was to lie there, slaughtered by the most noble of the citizens, some of whom he furnished with everything they had. And not only would none of his friends approach his body, but not even any of his slaves. Because they're slaves and they're maybe like, fuck this asshole. Well, that and also like nobody really knows what the hell is going on. Now that Caesar's not in charge, who is in charge? If we go and remove this body, are we going to be in trouble with the next person? Like there is no power structure. Like at least when you had the Republic, you knew where the power passed, but they don't really have a Republic anymore. So how does it work? Right. Nobody wanted to be on the wrong side of whoever else came into power after that. Yeah, because Caesar had been a much kinder dictator than Sulla. That didn't mean who came next next would also be forgiving. Exactly. Like all of a sudden, all bets were off and all the rules that people thought that they were living by were just up in the air. Eventually, though, some slaves did approach Caesar's body. Three of them put him on a litter and carried him home. And I have to stop and talk about this. Barry Strauss points this out. This was not like a stretcher or something. This was a litter, which was basically a portable bed or even a tiny room with a roof and curtains. It could take four or even six or eight people to carry a litter for a wealthy Roman. So with three people carrying a litter, it must have been awkward. There would probably have been lots of stops and starts. Nicholas of Damascus tells us that the curtains weren't drawn. Caesar's hands hung over the edge of the litter and his wounded face was clearly visible. When people in the street saw him, they burst into tears. And I kind of wonder why the curtains weren't drawn. There's a part of me that wonders if this was kind of a final act of performance. If this was like a way to keep the people who did love Caesar aware of what had happened to him. My immediate thought on reading this part was Jackie O, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, giving a speech in front of, I think it was in front of the White House or like, you know, some kind of televised press conference or something. And she wore the outfit that she had been wearing when her husband was shot next to her and it still had blood on it. And she said she didn't want to change because she wanted them to see what they did to my husband. And I kind of think that's what we're looking at here. They didn't pull the curtains because they wanted people to see what had been done to Caesar, to their Caesar. It really mattered that the people, the common people, could see what had been taken from them and what had been done to their leader. Exactly. And I don't know who these slaves were. Um, I'm not sure if their names were recorded anywhere. I didn't see them. But whoever they were, I think that it's a clue that they cared about Caesar. And also, it was very brazen. Because if there had been someone else who rose quickly amongst the people, 
these slaves carrying that litter and it being all open, they could not cover up what they did. And making a unilateral decision about what happened to his body, because if there was somebody else who came into power, they might have wanted to do something with Caesar's body as part of the transition process. That's not unusual. So these people bringing his body home were taking a risk. The slaves arrived at Caesar's home and Calpurnia rushed outside to meet them, surrounded by women and servants. She wept, saying that she'd urged him not to go to that meeting, but that his fate was worse even than she'd feared. After Caesar's death, Brutus believed Rome would go back to being a republic. But the Senate lacked decisive leadership, and public opinion on the act was a pendulum that swung wildly over the next few days. The conspirators holed up on the Capitoline Hill, set guards, and made it defensible. But every day, Brutus went down the hill to the rostra, which was right at the foot of the hill. There, he gave speeches explaining over and over, ad nauseum, a zillion different ways, that what they'd done was actually in the best interests of the Republic. We're not murderers, you guys. We're heroes. I am a kingslayer. We hate kings, remember? Kings are no fun. Right. Kings are the devil. Did you not listen to the first episode in this podcast? Or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the... We're up to 13. I'm not going to go through all 13. Brutus was a kingslayer and he had killed a tyrant, you guys. That's what he did. He wants everyone to buy into his narrative. Drink that Kool-Aid. That's right. It was a deed every red-blooded Roman was supposed to cheer. But people weren't cheering quite as loudly as he'd hoped. Wah, wah. And like, why? I mean, are we not king killers? Isn't this what we're supposed to do? We're Romans. Come on. Did we not all agree on this one thing? And this one thing was that kings were the devil? No. Apparently not. <laughs> Cicero agreed. He praised their act. And that was actually kind of a big coup because Cicero was now like maybe the most senior member of the Senate or the most respected citizen in Rome at this point because all the other ones had been stabbed or otherwise killed. Or fled. Or fled. For a minute, it looked like Brutus's authority, gravitas, and idealism might have won the public and the Senate over. But then came Caesar's funeral. It was madness. Years ago, when his Aunt Julia died, Caesar had taken the opportunity to grandstand for her husband Marius at her funeral and establish his credibility as a populist. Which is great, because just make her funeral all about a dude. Yeah, I know, because that's what we do. Ugh. True to form, Caesar's own funeral was an even greater act of political theater. But at least it was all about Caesar and not somebody else. Well, Caesar would approve, wouldn't he? <laughs> After lying in state for a week, Caesar's body was carried in a procession led by an actor wearing an eerily lifelike wax mask of Caesar's face. Actors from each of Caesar's triumphs came, each wearing triumphal gear from each triumph and very lifelike wax masks of Caesar. I applaud your pronunciation of wax masks. Good job. I have to say that slowly because I've had a couple of glasses of wine and it just goes together. So let's just break this down for you. There are five Caesars. <laughs> five Caesars. And there's like a Gallic triumph Caesar. There's a Pontic triumph Caesar. That one lasted like two seconds, but it also gave Caesar his tagline, which is Veni Vidi Vici, which is I came, I saw, I manicured. There's the I defeated Pompey's son triumph. Nobody liked that one. That was the Spain triumph. There was the Alexandrian War Triumph, which was the Cleopatra all day for 10 months triumph. And then what was the other one? Oh, Pharsalus, defeating Pompey. So there were five Caesars in five lifelike wax masks all following out in this parade, looking really creepy. All with their distinctive outfits. It would have been super creepy. So these would have all been very lifelike. And this is creepy, even like to a degree of channeling Caesar. They were all trained to walk and stand and adopt the physicality of dead Caesar. It would have been super eerie. And I'm already a little bit creeped out. Caesar's listening right now. Caesar, dude. 
This sounds creepy. Are you aware of the creepitude? He's done. He's done? He's out. He checked out when he started talking about the stabby stab, didn't he? He did. He doesn't talk anymore. I sent him out with hugs. Maybe that's, I guess, good. So remember, like, Caesar's career as dictator had only been for, what, Jenny, a year and a couple months? I mean, it really depends on when you date it from. But when he got back from defeating Pompey's sons, that was about a year. A year and, like, two days. So he'd been dictator... In Rome for a year and two days. I think he'd been declared dictator for life for only a couple of months. Okay, he'd been declared dictator for life only a couple of months. He'd been in charge in Rome, in Rome, actually located there for a year and two days. And he was dead. This was his funeral procession. It was also filled with musicians and torchbearers, slaves whom Caesar had freed in his will, dancers and family members joined in, some carrying busts of Caesar. A funeral pyre was built in the field of Mars next to the tomb of Julia, Caesar's daughter. And here's where Caesar's veterans come into the story. In the days after Caesar's death, they'd been streaming into Rome on foot, some coming hundreds of miles. By now, the city was full of armed, seasoned veterans who'd been devoted to Caesar. They were watching carefully to see if the new government was going to keep Caesar's concessions to them, try to revoke them, or buy their loyalty with more. If they didn't like the result, you could probably guess what was going to happen. Stabby stab! Stabby stab. But now, at Caesar's funeral, a large group of armed veterans took an active role. They got emotional, ran up to the procession, and began escorting Caesar's body as an impromptu bodyguard. With loud cries of grief, they took the body and placed it on the rostra, on an ivory couch prepared for that occasion. A great lament went up, and the men banged swords against shields in grief. Antony got to deliver the oration, and he did Caesar proud. He led a deeply emotional lament, reciting Caesar's many victories and honors. He knelt and then rose, raised his arms to the sky, wept and mourned, and the people joined in, like a chorus following a leader, all reciting Caesar's great deeds, which everyone knew by heart thanks to the commentaries. Somebody read the commentaries, thank God! Finally! (laughs) Just not any of the generals that Caesar faced, but the regular people, because he was a populist, read the commentaries, or listened to them. The whole city mourned together in what Appian called a, quote, divine frenzy. Antony declared he wished he could exchange his own life for Caesar's. He emphasized Caesar's legendary clemency. Then, Antony uncovered Caesar's body, so his wounds were clearly visible, displayed Caesar's gray, mutilated head to the crowd, and then stripped off his blood-encrusted toga and waved it around on the end of a spear. This got everybody extremely riled up. I mean, just think about the last funeral you were at, okay? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Mark Antony wasn't there. Right, this might be a traumatic (laughs) thought. For me, it was someone extremely close to me. Um, Like, I'm thinking about if Mark Antony had run that funeral, (laughs) waving their clothes around on the end of a spear. And also displaying their body to the crowd so they could see clearly what had killed that person and get super angry about it. Well, he's a war elephant. You just never know what he's going to do. This is his way of grieving also. And I think that it really fit with the time. And also, like, this is an act of self-preservation. Like, Mark Antony's star was tied to Caesar's star. And in order for him to remain not dead, he really needed the people to see what had happened to Caesar. And he needed them to side with him that what had been done was killing a great man, not killing a king and tyrant. Right, because Antony at this point kind of saw himself as the inheritor of Caesar, didn't he? 
Well, he must have done. If not the inheritor, then definitely like a caretaker to the Caesar estate. But what he was was very much embedded with Caesar. So he must have had that fear. If this goes wrong and the people actually think that a tyrant's been killed, we're in trouble. And by we, I mean me and my retinue. I also think that there's room in Mark Antony for real grief. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying he wasn't really grieving Caesar. Remember, he'd served under Caesar and Pharsalus and Elysia. Like, he was Caesar's man through and through. He had the chance to abandon Caesar when Caesar was fighting Pompey. And he chose not to. He chose to come to Caesar's aid. So there was real love, I would imagine, between the two of them. Oh, I think that there was. I think that we don't know these people we do have Caesar sitting in Jen's head telling her things, but we don't have Mark Antony. We don't know what, how he feels about things. Maybe next season he'll come on the show. I don't know. I'm leaving that up to Jen. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle it. I mean, Mark Antony would really legit barf all over our podcast. Anyway, <laughs> I'm trying to say that I think that Mark Antony genuinely grieved Caesar, but I also think that there, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm sure there was political calculation there too. Caesar's will was read aloud at the funeral, and it contained some surprises. A number of people who'd participated in killing Caesar were benefactors of his will and named as guardians of his son if he ever had one. Caesarian didn't count. Antony, Caesar's faithful second-in-command, wasn't mentioned at all, and neither was Cleopatra. Shit move, Caesar. That's a dick move, Caesar. Can we get him to comment on that, or is he gone? Crickets. Ugh. Caesar, you're useless. It's like when I really want to know the answer to a question. He's just like, nope, not gonna, nope, fine. Another person who wasn't mentioned or even acknowledged in Caesar's will was his son with Cleopatra, like we said, Caesarian. And this is why I kind of think, you remember when in the last episode we talked about Suetonius saying that Caesar acknowledged Caesarian as his son, and I was like, I don't actually think that that happened. This is why, because he mentioned the possibility of a son in his will, but he deliberately left Caesarian out. So he must not have acknowledged Caesarian. Right? I don't think he did, or he wasn't ready to acknowledge him yet because of the tie with Cleopatra. Maybe he was waiting to be able to marry her properly to then acknowledge Caesarian. Or maybe waiting for the political time to be right, or something like that. We don't really know. So Caesar did not name Caesarian in his will at all, which is a total diss to Cleopatra. Instead, Caesar had adopted his 19-year-old grandnephew, Octavian, and made him his heir. Octavian inherited a fortune as well as Caesar's name. Caesar's will was enormously generous to the people. He bestowed every citizen in the city 300 sesterces, which is a lot of money, and converted the estate where Cleopatra was currently living into a public park. Cleopatra would have to leave. That is cold, Caesar. I know. He just really did not treat Cleopatra well in this will. During his speech, Antony vigorously denied that Caesar had been a tyrant. He listed all the members of the conspiracy who'd been named in Caesar's will, declaring in Caesar's voice, quote, did I save them just so they could destroy me? So he either channeled Caesar or he was doing like impressions. Probably an impression. He pointed out that everyone in the Senate building that day had betrayed their vow to protect Caesar's life. As an afterthought, he also granted amnesty for the assassins, but the damage had been done. Public opinion had turned against the assassins and it would not turn back. In a particularly weird finale, 
a lifelike wax image of Caesar's corpse, complete with all his stab wounds, was lifted above the platform where it hovered, rotating slowly on a mechanical device, so everyone could see what had been done. This provoked the crowd into a frenzy. This is such a weird scene. It really is, but it's such an elaborate piece of, like, political theater. It's so weird. A crowd of mourners seized Caesar's body on its couch. Ignoring the original plan to cremate him on the field of Mars, they brought the body to the forum, where they dragged benches from the nearby law courts and piled them up in a huge pyre. They laid Caesar's body on top of it and set the whole thing to the torch. People threw things into the fire as gifts, the clothes off their backs, their weapons, their jewels. Then the riots began. An angry mob took to the streets, hunting for Caesar's murderers, howling for their blood. In the fury and confusion, they burned down the house of someone who wasn't a conspirator, and then they turned on another innocent victim, a tribune of the people and a poet named Cinna. He happened to share a name with one of the conspirators, but he'd had nothing to do with Caesar's killing and was actually a Caesar supporter. Still, you can't reason with a mob. They killed the wrong Cinna, beheaded him, and paraded his head through the streets. So where was Cleopatra during all this? No word on whether or not she was at the funeral. It took place on the field of Mars, which she would have been allowed to go to because it was outside the sacred boundary of the city. But she may have been wary about the public mood. Rome was not exactly safe for Cleopatra at the moment. She had been Caesar's mistress, a foreign queen, and the whispers that she'd been secretly trying to take over Rome with Caesar had already begun. Stacy Schiff tells us that she was in Rome for the thunderstorm that came roaring into town just after the funeral, and for the comet that lit up the sky for a week after they buried Caesar. It must have been like the end of times. Cleopatra went back to Alexandria within the week, but it wouldn't be the last Rome would hear from her. In assassinating Caesar, Brutus had wanted to give Rome back to its people. That is not what happened. Caesar's legions were in the city now, and they were out for blood, and it was only a matter of time before somebody made use of them. Three power players emerged. Mark Antony, a guy named Lepidus, who appears nowhere else in this story, and Octavian, Caesar's 19-year-old nephew and his heir. Soon, Rome was plunged into convulsive civil war on a scale that dwarfed the Marius and Sulla wars. Within three years, almost all the conspirators had died violent deaths. Many committed suicide. After his armies were defeated by those jointly led by Mark Antony and Octavian, Brutus killed himself by running onto a sword held by his own men. It was said he called down curses on Mark Antony's head as he died. When she heard, his wife, Portia, committed suicide by swallowing hot coals. I mean... That is just a really dramatic way to commit suicide. That's a horrible way to commit suicide. I think I read somewhere that she was on suicide watch and people were trying to keep her from harming herself and the hot coals were like the only thing available. This is exactly how Cato went out. She truly is Cato's daughter. They knew he was going to do something and they watched him and he committed suicide anyway. He would rather die than live under Caesar's regime and I'm assuming for Portia it was kind of the same. Yeah, I guess. The three power players, Mark Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian, joined together fought against lesser enemies in the Senate, and then, when these were defeated, they turned on each other. Brutal prescriptions rocked the city, this time targeted at the conspirators and anyone who sympathized with or harbored them. Same rules as in the Sully years, immense rewards in exchange for the severed head of anyone on the list, but this time, the scale was far greater. Thousands of aristocrats, senators, equestrians, and others lost their lives, including Cicero. Caesar's grand tradition of clemency, which had grated so much on everyone's pride, was dead. Cleopatra went back to Alexandria, 
But she soon found herself drawn back into Roman politics and into another passionate love affair with a prominent Roman, this time Mark Antony. The same year, Cleopatra urged Mark Antony to order the execution of her sister Arsinoe, who'd been taking refuge at the Temple of Ephesus. Arsinoe was murdered on the steps of the temple, and this caused a huge scandal in Rome because it violated the tradition of temple sanctuary. Mark Antony and Cleopatra thought they could combine their strengths and rule the world, and both brought a lot to the table. Cleopatra with her immense wealth, Mark Antony with his experience as a commander and the loyalty of Caesar's legions, as well as Caesar's fortune, which he'd appropriated from Octavian. But they hadn't factored in Octavian's grit and ingenuity and that of Agrippa, his 20-year-old BFF, who already had a superb military mind. For 13 years, Octavian and Agrippa fought with Mark Antony and Cleopatra over the bleeding corpse of the Republic. At the end of it, after having lost his last crucial battle, hunted by Octavian's agents and believing Cleopatra had betrayed him and was already dead, Antony fell on his own sword. But the wound to the gut was not fatal, and writhing in pain, he begged one of his followers to finish him off. Instead, someone delivered the news that Cleopatra was still alive and in hiding. Antony was brought to her, and he died in her arms. Cleopatra was captured by Octavian's army and committed suicide rather than be featured in his triumph. She died by snakebite, and we talk more about that in Locusta the Poisoner. Octavian had her son with Caesar, Caesarian, executed. He was 17 years old. After 13 years of war, Octavian would emerge the victor, cleverer than Mark Antony, and a better politician even than Caesar. At the age of 36, he was crowned emperor of Rome, and he ruled for 41 years, dying a peaceful death in bed. Octavian, later known as Augustus, managed to do what Caesar could not successfully walk the line between holding absolute power and cloaking the amount of power he actually held so that the Senate and public could reassure themselves that they still held a piece of the Republic for themselves. But it was a lie. Caesar was the kind of guy you could talk back to and even make fun of, but Augustus wasn't. The poet Virgil was born during Caesar's time, when you could write funny, insulting poems about Caesar and not get killed. By the time Augustus commissioned him to write the Aeneid, he had to be very, very subtle about writing anything in there that was less than flattering to Augustus. Because Augustus killed people for writing funny poems, he had zero sense of humor. The Republic was dead, and it would never rise again. Rome was to be ruled by emperors until the death of its last one, 500 years later. You could blame Caesar for breaking the Republic. A lot of people do, but as soon as it was founded, the senators of Rome tested the limits of its checks and balances. You could say Marius struck the first blow to the Republic, that Caesar dealt the death blow, and Augustus put the nails in its coffin. But the truth was, the Republic was already broken long before that. You could even say it started dying the day it was born. So Julius Caesar, what do you think? How do we do? Julius Caesar believes that you girls have done him proud. Oh. That's wonderful. Thank you, Julius Caesar. And that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, get in touch with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. And check out our Patreon. We keep bringing this up because we're so excited about our Patreon. We're thinking about doing mini-sodes, which are 10-minute episodes that are basically just little rabbit holes that we didn't get a chance to go down in our longer episodes. Just to give you guys a little bit more background and things or just for Jen and me to you know, self-indulgently goof off. Yeah, and also, like, give you a little more fangirl right into your ears. More of that sweet, sweet and booze poison. <laughs> yeah, so 
Once we reach $150 a month on our Patreon, which as of this recording, we have not reached. I don't know. This drops in August or something, but we don't we don't know. So we're at this point because what is it, Jen? It's like first weekend of June when we record this because we do everything super far ahead of time. We're crossing our fingers and wherever we are at, we could use a little more to bring you more minisodes because the more we get through our Patreon, the more minisodes we can, we'll have the time and resources to bring you. And also, if you subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 a month level or up, you will get access to the minisodes and then you'll get to listen to more of us. Yay. I mean, how could that not be a good thing, right? Totally. And if you want to support the podcast, but you're not into Patreon, that's fine. We have other options. Check out our Ko-Fi account. There's a link on the homepage of our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can buy us a coffee or a cocktail or an elephant-sized human gall martini if you wanted to. And every little bit is really appreciated. Running this podcast is a lot of work, not just in research, but also like books are expensive. Anything you can do to help is important. So if you want to support us but aren't in a place to give money, leave us a nice review. These help us get seen. They give us a boost in the algorithms. And honestly, it makes our day. And also, if you're on social, follow us on social because all of those things help us to grow our presence. So thank you so much. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much. 